in the depths of the library of death. A squeaking noise. It was not loud, but it appeared louder than mere decibels would suggest in the furtive, scribbling hush of the books. Everyone, it is said, has a book inside them. In this library, everyone was inside a book. The squeaking got louder. It had a rhythmical, circular quality. Book on book, shelf on shelf, and in every one, at the page of the ever-moving now, a scribble of handwriting following the narrative of every life. The squeaking came round the corner. It was issuing from what looked like a very rickety edifice several stories high. It looked rather like a siege tower, open at the sides. At the base, between the wheels, was a pair of geared treadles which moved the whole thing. Susan clung to the railing of the topmost platform. Can't you hurry up, she said. We're only at the bees at the moment. I've been peddling for ages, panted the O-God. Well, A is a very popular letter. Susan stared up at the shelves. A was for a non, among other things. All those people who for one reason or another never officially got a name. They tended to be short books. Ah, bow, bod, bog, turn left. The library tower squeaked ponderously around the next corner. Ah, bow, blast, the bots are at least twenty shelves up. Oh, how nice, said the O-God grimly. He heaved on the lever that moved the drive chain from one sprocket to another and started to pedal again. Very ponderously, the creaking tower began to telescope upwards. Right, we're there, Susan shouted down after a few minutes of slow rise. Here, let's see. Arbana Bottler? I expect Violet will be a lot further, said the O-God, trying out irony. Onwards! Swaying a little, the tower headed down the bees until... Stop! It rocked as the O-God kicked the brake block against a wheel. I think this is her, said a voice from above. OK, you can lower away. A big wheel with ponderous lead weights on it spun slowly as the tower concertinaed back, creaking and grinding. Susan climbed down the last few feet. Everyone's in here, said the O-God as she thumbed through the pages. Yes, even gods. Anything that's alive and self-aware, said Susan, not looking up. This is odd. It looks as though she's in some sort of prison. Who'd want to lock up a tooth fairy? Someone with very sensitive teeth? Susan flicked back a few pages. It's all hoods over her head and people carrying her and so on. But she turned a page. It says the last job she did was on banjo. And yes, she got the tooth and then she felt as though someone was behind her. And there's a ride on a cart and the hood's come off, and there's a causeway, and... All that's in a book. The autobiography. Everyone has one. It writes down your life as you go along. I've got one. I expect so. Oh, dear. Got up, was sick, wanted to die. Not a gripping read, really. Susan turned the page. A tower, she said. She's in a tower. From what she saw, it was tall and white inside but not outside. It didn't look real. There were apple trees around it, but the trees... The trees didn't look right. And a river, but that wasn't right either. There were goldfish in it, but they were on top of the water. Ah, pollution, said the O-God. I don't think so. It says here she saw them swimming. Swimming on top of the water? That's how she thinks she saw it. Really? You don't think she's been eating any of that mouldy cheese, do you? and there was a blue sky, 
But she must have got this wrong. It says here there was only blue sky above. Yeah, best place for the sky, said the O-God. Sky underneath you, that probably means trouble. Susan flicked a page back and forth. She means sky overhead, but not around the edges, I think. No sky on the horizon. Excuse me, said the O-God. I'm not long in this world, I appreciate that. But I think you have to have sky on the horizon. Uh, that's how you can tell it's the horizon. A sense of familiarity was creeping up on Susan, but surreptitiously, dodging behind things whenever she tried to concentrate on it. I've seen this place, she said, tapping the page. If only she'd looked harder at the trees. She says they've got brown trunks and green leaves, and it says here she thought they were odd, and... She concentrated on the next paragraph. Flowers growing in the grass with big round petals. She stared, unseeing, at the O-God again. This isn't a proper landscape, she said. Doesn't sound too unreal to me, said the O-God. Sky, trees, flowers, dead fish. Brown tree trunks. Really, they're mostly a sort of greyish, mossy colour. You only ever see brown tree trunks in one place, said Susan, and it's the same place where the sky is only ever overhead. The blue never comes down to the ground. She looked up. At the far end of the corridor was one of the very tall, very thin windows. It looked out onto the black gardens. Black bushes, black grass, black trees. Skeletal fish cruising in the black waters of a pool under black water lilies. There was colour, in a sense, but it was the kind of colour you'd get if you could shine a beam of black through a prism. There were hints of tints here and there, a black you might persuade yourself was a very deep purple or a midnight blue. But it was basically black, under a black sky, because this was the world belonging to death, and that was all there was to it. The shape of death was the shape people had created for him over the centuries. Why bony? Because bones were associated with death. He'd got a scythe because agricultural people could spot a decent metaphor. And he lived in a sombre land because the human imagination would be rather stretched to let him live somewhere nice with flowers. People like death lived in the human imagination and got their shape there too. He wasn't the only one. But he didn't like the script, did he? He'd started to take an interest in people. Was that a thought or just a memory of something that hadn't happened yet? The O-God followed her gaze. Can we go after her? said the O-God. I say we. I think I've just got drafted in because I was in the wrong place. She's alive. That means she is mortal, said Susan. That means I can find her too. She turned and started to walk out of the library. If she says the sky is just blue overhead, what's between it and the horizon, said the O-God, running to keep up. You don't have to come, said Susan. It's not your problem. Yes, but given that my problem is that my whole purpose in life is to feel rotten, anything's an improvement. It could be dangerous. I don't think she's there of her own free will. Would you be any good in a fight? Yes, I could be sick on people. It was a shack somewhere on the outskirts of the plains town of Scrote. Scrote had a lot of outskirts, spread so widely, a busted cart here, a dead dog there, that often people went through it without even knowing it was there. And really, it only appeared on the maps because cartographers get embarrassed about big empty spaces. Hogswatch came after the excitement of the cabbage harvest, when it was pretty quiet in Scrote, and there was nothing much to look forward to until the fun of the Sprout Festival. This shack had an iron stove, and 
with a pipe that went up through the thick cabbage-leaf thatch. Voices echoed faintly within the pipe. This is really, really stupid. I think the tradition got started when everyone had them big chimneys, master. This voice sounded as though it was coming from someone standing on the roof and shouting down the pipe. Indeed, it's only a mercy it's unlit. There was some muffled scratching and banging, and then a thump from within the pot-belly of the stove. Damn! What's up, master? The door has no handle on the inside. I call that inconsiderate. There were some more bumps, and then a scrape as the stove lid was lifted up and pushed sideways. An arm came out and felt around the front of the stove until it found the handle. It played with it for a while, but it was obvious that the hand did not belong to a person used to opening things. In short, death came out of the stove. Exactly how would be difficult to describe without folding the page. Time and space were, from death's point of view, merely things that he'd heard described. When it came to death, they ticked the box marked not applicable. It might help to think of the universe as a rubber sheet, or perhaps not. Let us in, master, a pitiful voice echoed down from the roof. It's brass monkeys out here. Death went over to the door. Snow was blowing underneath it. He peered nervously at the woodwork. There was a thump outside, and Albert's voice sounded a lot closer. What's up, master? Death stuck his head through the wood of the door. There's these metal things. Bolts, master, you slide them, said Albert, sticking his hands under his armpits to keep them warm. Ah! Death's head disappeared. Albert stamped his feet and watched his breath cloud in the air while he listened to the pathetic scrabbling on the other side of the door. Death's head appeared again. Um, It's the latch, master, said Albert wearily. Right, right. You put your thumb on it and push it down. Right. The head disappeared. Albert jumped up and down a bit and waited. The head appeared. Uh, I was with you up to the thumb. Albert sighed. And then you press down and pull, master. Ah, right. Got you. The head disappeared. Oh, dear, thought Albert. He just can't get the hang of them, can he? The door jerked open. Death stood behind it, beaming proudly, as Albert staggered in, snow blowing in with him. Blimey, it's getting really parky, said Albert. Any sherry? he added hopefully. It appears not. Death looked at the sock hooked onto the side of the stove. It had a hole in it. A letter in erratic handwriting was attached to it. Death picked it up. The boy wants a pair of trousers that he doesn't have to share, a huge meat pie, a sugar mouse, a lot of toys, and a puppy called Scruff. Oh, sweet, said Albert. I shall wipe away a tear, cause what he's getting, see, is this little wooden toy and an apple. He held them out. But the letter clearly... Yes, well, it's socio-economic factors again, right? Said Albert. The world would be in a right mess if everyone got what they asked for, eh? I gave them what they wanted in the store. Yeah, and that's going to cause a lot of trouble, Master. All them toy pigs that really work. I didn't say nothing because it was getting the job done, but you can't go on like that. What good's a God who gives you everything you want? You have me there. It's the hope that's important. Big part of belief, hope. Give people jam today and they'll just sit and eat it. Jam tomorrow now. That'll keep them going forever. 
And you mean that because of this, the poor get poor things, and the rich get rich things? That's right, said Albert. That's the meaning of Hogswatch. Death nearly wailed. But I'm the Hogfather. He looked embarrassed. At the moment, I mean. Makes no difference, said Albert, shrugging. I remember when I was a nipper. One Hogswatch, I had my heart set on this huge model horse they had in the shop. His face creased for a moment in a grim smile of recollection. I remember I spent hours one day, cold as charity the weather was. I spent hours with my nose pressed up against the window until they heard me calling and unfroze me. I saw them take it out the window. Someone was in there buying it and, you know, just for a second, I thought it really was going to be for me. Oh, I dreamed of that toy horse. It were red and white with a real saddle and everything. And rockers, I'd have killed for that horse. He shrugged again. Not a chance, of course, because we didn't have a pot to piss in. And we even had to spit on the bread to make it soft enough to eat. Please enlighten me. What is so important about having a pot to piss in? It's, it's more like a figure of speech, Master. It means you're as poor as a church mouse. Are they poor? Well, yeah, but surely not more poor than any other mouse. And after all, there tend to be lots of candles and things they could eat. It's a figure of speech again, Master. It doesn't have to make sense. Oh, I see. Do carry on. Of course, I still hung up my stocking on Hogswatch Eve. In the morning, you know, you know what? Our dad had put in this little horse. He'd carved his very own self. Ah, said Death, and that was worth more than all the expensive toy horses in the world, eh? Albert gave him a beady look. No, he said, it weren't. All I could think of was it wasn't the big horse in the window. Death looked shocked. But how much better to have a toy carved with... No, only grown-ups think like that, said Albert. You're a selfish little bugger when you're seven. Anyway, Dad got ratted after lunch and trod on it. Lunch? All right, maybe we had a bit of pork dripping for the bread. Even so, the spirit of Hogswatch, Albert sighed. If you like, Master... If you like. Death looked perturbed. But supposing the Hogfather had brought you the wonderful horse? Ah, Dad would have flogged it for a couple of bottles, said Albert. But we have been into houses where the children had many toys and brought them even more toys. And in houses like this, the children get practically nothing. Huh? We'd have given anything to get practically nothing when I were a lad, said Albert. Be happy with what you've got. Is that the idea? That's about the size of it, Master. A good god line, that. Don't give them too much and tell them to be happy with it. Jam tomorrow. See? This is wrong, Death hesitated. I mean, it's right to be happy with what you've got, but you've got to have something to be happy about having. There's no point in being happy about having nothing. Albert felt a bit out of his depth in this new tide of social philosophy. Dunno, he said. I suppose people would say they've got the moon and the stars and such like. I'm sure they wouldn't be able to produce the paperwork. All I know is, if Dad had caught us with a big bag of pricey toys, we'd have just got a ding round the ear hole for nicking him. 
It is unfair. That's life, Master. But I'm not. I meant this is how it's supposed to go, Master, said Albert. No, you mean this is how it goes. Albert leaned against the stove and rolled himself one of his horrible thin cigarettes. It was best to let the master work his own way through these things. He got over them eventually. It was like that business with the violin. For three days there was nothing but twangs and broken strings, and then he'd never touched the thing again. That was the trouble, really. Everything the master did was a bit like that. When things got into his head, you just had to wait until they leaked out again. He'd thought that Hogswatch was all plum pudding and brandy and ho-ho-ho, and he didn't have the kind of mind that could ignore all the other stuff. And so it hurt him. It is Hogswatch, said Death, and people die on the streets. People feast behind lighted windows and other people have no homes. Is this fair? Well, of course. That's the big issue, Albert began. The peasant had a handful of beans and the king had so much he would not even notice that which he gave away. Is this fair? Yeah, but if you gave it all to the peasant, then in a year or two he'd be just as snooty as the king, began Albert, jaundiced observer of human nature. Naughty and nice, said Death, but it's easy to be nice if you're rich. Is this fair? Albert wanted to argue. He wanted to say, really? In that case, how come so many of the rich buggers these bastards? And being poor don't mean being naughty, neither. We was poor when I were a kid, but we was honest. Well, more stupid than honest, to tell the truth, but basically honest. He didn't argue, though. The master wasn't in any mood for it. He always did what needed to be done. You did say we just had to do this so people would believe, he began, and then stopped and started again. When it comes to fair, master... You yourself? I am even-handed to rich and poor alike, snapped Death. But this should not be a sad time. This is supposed to be the season to be jolly. He wrapped his red robe around him. And other things ending in Ollie, he added. There's no blade, said the O-God. It's just a sword hilt. Susan stepped out of the light and her wrist moved. A sparkling blue line flashed in the air for a moment, outlining an edge too thin to be seen. The O-God backed away. What's that? Oh, it cuts tiny bits of the air in half. It can cut the soul away from the body, so stand back, please. Oh, I will, I will. Susan fished the black scabbard out of the umbrella stand. Umbrella stand? It never rained here, but death had an umbrella stand. Practically no one else Susan knew had an umbrella stand. In any list of useful furniture, the one found at the bottom would be the umbrella stand. Death lived in a black world where nothing was alive and everything was dark and his great library only had dust and cobwebs because he'd created them for effect. And there was never any sun in the sky and the air never moved and he had an umbrella stand and a pair of silver-backed hairbrushes by his bed. He wanted to be something more than just a bony apparition. He tried to create these flashes of personality, but somehow they betrayed themselves. They tried too hard, like an adolescent boy going out wearing an aftershave called Rampant. Grandfather always got things wrong. He saw life from outside and never quite understood. That looks dangerous, said the O-God. Susan sheathed the sword. I hope so, she said. Um, where are we going, exactly? Somewhere under an overhead sky, said Susan, and I've seen it before. 
Recently, I know the place. They walked out to the stable yard. Binky was waiting. I said you don't have to come, said Susan, grasping the saddle. I mean you're a, an innocent bystander. But I'm a god of hangovers who's been cured of hangovers, said the O-God. I haven't really got any function at all. He looked so forlorn when he said this that she relented. All right, come on then. She pulled him up behind her. Just hang on, she said. And then she said, hang on somewhere differently, I mean. I'm sorry, was that a problem? said the O-God, shifting his grip. It might take too long to explain, and you probably don't know all the words. Around the waist, please. Susan took out Violet's hourglass and held it up. There was a lot of sand left to run, but she couldn't be certain that that was a good sign. All she could be certain of was that the horse of death could go anywhere. The sound of Hex's quill as it scrabbled across the paper was like a frantic spider trapped in a matchbox. Despite his dislike of what was going on, there was a part of Ponder Stibbons that was very, very impressed. In the past, when Hex had been recalcitrant about its calculations, when it had got into a mechanical sulk and had started writing things like plus, 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 out of cheese, error, plus, 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 and plus, 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 redo from start, plus, 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 Ponder had tried to sort things out calmly and logically. It had never, ever occurred to him to contemplate hitting Hex with a mallet, but this was, in fact, what Ridcully was threatening to do. What was impressive, and also more than a little worrying, was that Hex seemed to understand the concept. Right, said Ridcully, putting the mallet aside. Let's have no more of this insufficient dates business, shall we? There's boxes of the damn things back in the Great Hall. You can have the lot, as far as I'm concerned. It's data, not dates, said Ponder helpfully. What? You mean, like, more than dates? Extra sticky? No, no, data is Hex's word for, uh, well, facts, said Ponder. Ridiculous way to behave, said Ridcully brusquely. If he's stumped for an answer, why can't he write, You've got me there, or damned if I know, or that's a bit of a puzzler and no mistake. All this insufficient data business is just pure contrariness to my mind. Mm -hmm. It's just swank, he turned back to Hex. Right, you... Hazard a guess. The quill started to write, plus, 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 insuffi... and then stopped. After quivering for a moment, it went down a line and started again. Plus, 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 this is just calculating aloud, you understand. Plus, plus, plus. Fair enough, said Ridcully. Plus, 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 the amount of belief in the world must be subject to an upper limit. Plus, plus, plus. What an odd question, said the dean. Sounds sensible, said Ridcully. I suppose people just believe in stuff. Obviously there's a limit to what you can believe in. I've always said so. So what? Plus, plus, plus. Creatures have appeared that were once believed in. Plus, plus, plus. Yes, yes, you could put it like that. Plus, plus, plus. They disappeared because they were not believed in. Plus, plus, plus. Seems reasonable, said Ridcully. Plus, plus, plus. People were believing in something else, dash, query, plus, plus, plus. Ridcully looked at the other wizards. They shrugged. Could be, he said guardedly. People can only believe in so many things. Plus, plus, plus. It follows that if a major focus of belief is removed, there will be spare belief. Plus, plus, plus. Ridcully stared at the words. You mean sloshing around? 
The big wheel with the ram skulls on it began to turn ponderously. The scurrying ants in the glass tubes took on a new urgency. What's happening? said Ridcully in a loud whisper. I think Hex is looking up the word sloshing, said Ponder. It may be in long-term storage. A large hourglass came down on the spring. What's that for? said Ridcully. Uh, it shows Hex is working things out. Oh, and that buzzing noise seems to be coming from the other side of the wall. Ponder coughed. That is the long-term storage, Arch-Chancellor. And uh, how does that work? Uh, well, if you think of memory as a series of little shelves or, 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 or holes, Arch-Chancellor, in which you can put things, well, we found a way of making a sort of memory which uh, interfaces neatly with the ants, in fact, but more importantly can expand its size depending on how much we give it to remember and uh, is probably a bit slow, but... It's a very loud buzzing, said the Dean. Is it going wrong? No, that shows it's working, said Ponder. It's, uh, beehives, he coughed. Different types of pollen, different thicknesses of honey, placement of the eggs. It's actually amazing how much information you can store on one honeycomb. He looked at their faces. And it's very secure because anyone trying to tamper with it will get stung to death. And Adrian believes that when we shut it down in the summer holidays, we should get a nice lot of honey too, he coughed again. For our sandwiches, he said. He felt himself getting smaller and hotter under their gazes. Hex came to his rescue. The hourglass bounced away and the quill pen was jerked in and out of its inkwell. Plus, plus, plus. Yes. Sloshing around. Accreting. Plus, plus, plus. That means forming around new centres, Arch-Chancellor, said Ponder helpfully. I know that, said Ridcully. Blast. Remember when we had all that life force all over the place? A man couldn't call his trousers his own. So, the spare belief sloshing around, thank you. And these little devils are taking advantage of it. Coming back, hmm? Household gods? Plus, 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 this is possible, plus, plus, plus. All right, then. So what are people not believing in all of a sudden? Plus, 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 out of cheese error, plus, plus, plus. Melon, 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 plus, plus, plus. Redo from start, plus, plus, plus. Thank you. A simple I don't know would have been sufficient, said Ridcully, sitting back. One of the major gods, said the chair of indefinite studies. <laughs> We'd soon know about it if one of those vanished. It's Hogswatch, said the dean. I suppose the Hogfather is around, is he? You believe in him, said Ridcully. Well, he's for kids, isn't he, said the dean. But I'm sure they all believe in him. I certainly did. It wouldn't be Hogswatch when I was a kid without pillowcase hanging by the fire. Er, uh, pillowcase, said the senior wrangler sharply. Well, you can't get much in a stocking, said the dean. Yes, but uh, a whole pillowcase, the senior wrangler insisted. Yes, what of it? Is it just me, or is that a rather greedy and selfish way to behave? In my family we just hung up very small socks, said the senior wrangler, a sugar pig, a toy soldier, a couple of oranges, and that was it. Eh, turns out people with whole pillowcases were cornering the market, hmm? Shut up and stop squabbling, both of you, said Ridcully. There must be a simple way to check up. How can you tell if the Hogfather exists? Someone's drunk the sherry, there's sooty footprints on the carpet, sleigh tracks on the roof, 
and your pillowcase is full of presents, said the dean. Uh-huh, pillowcase, said the senior wrangler darkly. Ah, I expect your family with a stuck-up sort that didn't even open their presents until after Hogs Watch dinner, hmm? <laughs> One of them with a big snooty Hogs Watch tree in the hall. What if... Ridcully began, but he was too late. Well, said the dean, of course we waited until after lunch. You know, it really used to wind me right up, people with big snooty hogswatch trees. And I just bet you had one of those swanky fancy nutcrackers like a big thumbscrew, said the senior wrangler. Some people had to make do with the coal hammer out of the outhouse, of course. And had dinner in the middle of the day instead of la-di-da posh dinner in the evening. I can't help it if my family had money, said the dean. And that might have diffused things a bit, had he not added, and standards. And big pillowcases, shouted the senior wrangler, bouncing up and down in rage. And I bet you bought your holly, eh? The dean raised his eyebrows. Of course. We didn't go creeping around the country pinching it out of other people's hedges like some people did, he snapped. That's traditional. That's part of the fun. Celebrating Hogswatch with stolen greenery. Ridcully put his hands over his eyes. The word for this, he had heard, was cabin fever. When people had been cooped up for too long in the dark days of the winter, they always tended to get on one another's nerves, although there was probably a school of thought that would hold that spending your time in a university with more than 5,000 known rooms, a huge library, the best kitchens in the city, its own brewery, dairy, extensive wine cellar, laundry, barbershop, cloisters and skittle alley was testing the definition of cooped up a little. Mind you, wizards could get on one another's nerves in opposite corners of a very large field. Just shut up, will you, he said. It's Hogswatch. That's not the time for silly arguments, all right? Oh, yes, it is, said the chair of indefinite studies glumly. It's exactly the time for silly arguments. In our family, we were lucky to get through dinner without a reprise of what a shame Henry didn't go into business with our Ron. Or why hasn't anyone taught those kids to use a knife? That was another favourite. And the sulks said Ponder Stibbons. Oh, the sulks, said the chair of indefinite studies. Not a proper hog's watch without everyone sitting, staring at different walls. The games were worse, said Ponder. Worse than the kids hitting one another with their toys, do you think? Not a proper hog's watch afternoon without wheels and bits of broken dolly everywhere and everyone whining. Assault and battery included. <laughs> we had a game called Hunt the Slipper, said Ponder. Someone hid a slipper, and then we had to find it, and then we had a row. It's not really bad, said the lecturer in recent rooms. I mean, not proper hog's watch bad, unless everyone's wearing a paper hat. There's always that bit, isn't there, when someone's horrible great-aunt puts on a paper hat and smirks at everyone because she's being so bohemian. I'd forgotten about the paper hats, said the chair of indefinite studies. Oh, dear. And then later on someone'll suggest a board game, said Ponder. That's right, where no one exactly remembers all the rules. Which doesn't stop someone suggesting that you play for pennies. 
And five minutes later, there's two people not speaking to one another for the rest of their lives because of tuppence. And some horrible little kid. I know, I know, some little kid who's been allowed to stay up wins everyone's money by being a nasty little cutthroat swat. Right. Er, uh, said Ponder, who rather suspected that he had been that child. And don't forget the presents, said the chair of indefinite studies, as if reading off some internal list of gloom. How, how full of potential they seem in all that paper. How pregnant with possibilities. And then you open them and basically the wrapping paper was more interesting and you have to say, how thoughtful, that will come in handy. It's not better to give than to receive, in my opinion. It's just less embarrassing. I've worked out said the senior wrangler, that over the years I have been a net exporter of Hogswatch presents. Oh, everyone is, said the chair. You spend a fortune on other people, and what you get when all the paper is cleared away is one slipper that's the wrong colour and a book about earwax. Ridcully sat in horrified amazement. He'd always enjoyed Hogswatch, every bit of it. He'd always enjoyed seeing ancient relatives. He'd enjoyed the food. He'd been good at games like Chase My Neighbour Up the Passage and Hooray Jolly Tinker. He was always the first to don a paper hat. He felt that paper hats lent a special festive air to the occasion. And he always very carefully read the messages on Hogswatch cards and found time for a few kind thoughts about the sender. Listening to his wizards was like watching someone kick apart a doll's house. At least the Hogswatch cracker mottos are fun he ventured. They all turned to look at him, and then turned away again. If you have the sense of humour of a wire coat hanger, said the senior wrangler. Oh dear, said Ridcully, then perhaps there isn't a hogfather if all you chaps are sitting around with long faces. He's not the sort to let people go around being miserable. Ridcully, he's just some old winter god, said the senior wrangler wearily. He's not the cheerful fairy or anything. The lecturer in recent runes raised his chin from his hands. What cheerful fairy? Oh, it's just something my granny used to go on about if it was a wet afternoon and we were getting on her nerves, said the senior wrangler. She'd say, I'll call the cheerful fairy if you... He stopped, looking guilty. The arch-chancellor held a hand to his ear in a theatrical gesture denoting, Hush, what was that I heard? Someone tinkled, he said. Thank you, senior wrangler. Oh, no, the senior wrangler moaned. No, no, no. They listened for a moment. We might have got away with it, said Ponder. I didn't hear anything. Yes, but you can just imagine her, can't you, said the dean. The moment you said it, I had this picture in my mind. She's going to have a whole bag of word games, for one thing or she'll suggest we go outdoors for our health. The wizards shuddered. They weren't against the outdoors, it was simply their place in it they objected to. Cheerfulness has always got me down, said the dean. Well, if some wretched little ball of cheerfulness turns up, I shan't have it for one, said the senior wrangler, folding his arms. I've put up with monsters and trolls and big green things with teeth, so I'm not sitting still for any kind of... Hello! Hello! The voice was the kind of voice that reads suitable stories to children. Every vowel was beautifully rounded, 
and they could hear the extra exclamation marks born of a sort of desperate, despairing jollity slot into place. They turned. The cheerful fairy was quite short and plump in a tweed skirt and shoes so sensible they could do their own tax returns and was pretty much like the first teacher you got at school, the one who has special training in dealing with nervous incontinence and little boys whose contribution to the wonderful world of sharing consists largely of hitting a small girl repeatedly over the head with a wooden horse. In fact, this picture was helped by the whistle on a string around her neck and a general impression that at any moment she would clap her hands. The tiny gauzy wings just visible on her back were probably just for show, but the wizards kept on staring at her shoulder. Hello, she said again, but a lot more uncertainly. She gave them a suspicious look. You're rather big, boys, she said, as if they'd become so in order to spite her. She blinked. It's my job to chase those blues away, she added, apparently following a memorised script. Then she seemed to rally a bit and went on, So, chins up, everyone, and let's see a lot of bright, shining faces. Her gaze met that of the senior wrangler, who had probably never had a bright, shining face in his entire life. He specialised in dull, sullen ones. The one he was wearing now would have won prizes. Excuse me, madam, said Ridcully, but is that a chicken on your shoulder? It's, um, it's... It's the blue bird of happiness, said the cheerful fairy. Her voice now had the slightly shaking tone of someone who doesn't quite believe what she has just said, but is going to go on saying it anyway, just in case saying it will eventually make it true. I beg your pardon, but it is a, a chicken. A live chicken, said Ridcully. It just went cluck. It is blue, she said hopelessly. Well, that at least is true, Ridcully conceded, as kindly as he could manage. Left to myself, I, I, I expect I'd have imagined a slightly more streamlined blue bird of happiness, but I can't actually fault you there. The cheerful fairy coughed nervously and fiddled with the buttons on her sensible woolly jumper. How about a nice game to get us all in the mood, she said. A guessing game, perhaps, or a painting competition. There may be a small prize for the winner. Madam, we are wizards, said the senior wrangler. We don't do cheerful. Charades, said the cheerful fairy. Or perhaps you've been playing them already. How about a sing-song? Who knows row, row, row your boat? Her bright little smile hit the group scowl of the assembled wizards. We don't want to be Mr. Grumpy, do we? She added hopefully. Yes, said the senior wrangler. The cheerful fairy sagged and then patted frantically at her shapeless sleeves until she tugged out a balled-up handkerchief. She dabbed at her eyes. It's all going wrong again, isn't it? she said, her chin trembling. No one ever wants to be cheerful these days, and I really do try. I've made a joke book, and I've got three boxes of clothes for charades, and, and, and whenever I try to cheer people up, they all look embarrassed. And really, I do make an effort. She blew her nose loudly. Even the senior wrangler had the grace to look embarrassed. Um, he began... Would it hurt anyone just occasionally to try and be a little bit cheerful? 
said the cheerful fairy. Uh, in what way? said the senior wrangler, feeling wretched. Well, there's so many nice things to be cheerful about, said the cheerful fairy, blowing her nose again. Uh, raindrops and sunsets and that sort of thing, said the senior wrangler, managing some sarcasm, but they could tell his heart wasn't in it. Uh, would you like to borrow my handkerchief? It's nearly fresh. Why don't you get the lady a nice sherry, said Ridcully, and some corn for her chicken? Oh, I never drink alcohol, said the cheerful fairy, horrified. Really, said Ridcully, we find it something to be cheerful about. Mr. Stibbons, would you be so kind as to step over here for a moment? He beckoned him up close. There's got to be a lot of belief sloshing around to let her be created, he said. She's a good fourteen stone, if I may judge. If we wanted to contact the Hogfather, how would we go about it? Let her up, Chimney? Yes, but not tonight, sir, said Ponder. He'll be out delivering. No telling where he'll be, then, said Ridcully. Blast! Of course, he might not have come here yet, said Ponder. Eh, why should he come here? said Ridcully. The librarian pulled the blankets over himself and curled up. As an orangutan, he hankered for the warmth of the rainforest. The problem was that he'd never even seen a rainforest, having been turned into an orangutan when he was already a fully grown human. Something in his bones knew about it, though, and didn't like the cold of winter at all. But he was also a librarian in those same bones, and he flatly refused to allow fires to be lit in the library. As a result, pillows and blankets went missing everywhere else in the university and ended up in a sort of cocoon in the reference section in which the ape lurked during the worst of the winter. He turned over and wrapped himself in the bursar's curtains. There was a creaking outside his nest and some whispering. No, don't light the lamp. I wondered why I hadn't seen him all evening. Oh, he goes to bed early on Hogswatchies, sir. Here we are. There was some rustling. We're in luck. It hasn't been filled said Ponder. Looks like he's used one of the bursars. He puts it up every year, apparently. But it's not as though he's a child. A certain childlike simplicity, perhaps. It might be different for orangutans, Arch-Chancellor. Do they do it in the jungle, do you think? I don't imagine so, sir. No chimneys, for one thing. And quite short legs, of course. Extremely underfunded in the sock area, orangutans. They'd be quids in if they could hang up gloves, of course. Hogfather would be on double shifts if they could hang up their gloves, on account of the length of their arms. Very good, Arts-Chancellor. I say, what's this on the... My word, a glass of sherry. Well, waste not, want not. There was a damp glugging noise in the darkness. I think that was supposed to be for the Hogfather, sir. And the banana? I imagine that's been left out for the pigs, sir. Pigs? Oh, you know, sir, Tusker and Snouter and Gouger and Rooter. I mean... Ponder stopped, conscious that a grown man shouldn't be able to remember this sort of thing. That's what children believe. Bananas for pigs? That's not traditional, is it? I'd have thought acorns, perhaps, or apples or swedes. Yes, sir, but the librarian likes bananas, sir. Very nourishing fruit, Mr. Stibbons. Yes, sir, although funnily enough it's not actually a fruit, sir. Really? Yes, sir. 
botanically, it's a type of fish, sir. According to my theory, it's cladistically associated with the Krallian pipe fish, sir, which, of course, is also yellow and goes around in bunches or shoals. And lives in trees. Well, not usually, sir. The banana is obviously exploiting a new niche. Good heavens, really? It's a funny thing, but I've never much liked bananas, and I've always been a bit suspicious of fish, too. Hmm, that'd explain it. Yes, sir. Do they attack swimmers? Not that I've heard, sir. Of course, they may be clever enough to only attack swimmers who are far from land. What, you mean sort of high up? In the trees, as it were? Possibly, sir. Cunning, hmm? Yes, sir. Well, we might as well make ourselves comfortable, Mr. Stibbons. Yes, sir. A match flared in the darkness as Ridcully lit his pipe. The Ankh-Morpork Wassailers had practised for weeks. The custom was referred to by Anaglypta Hugs, organiser of the best and most select group of the city's singers, as an occasion for fellowship and good cheer. One should always be wary of people who talk unashamedly of fellowship and good cheer, as if it was something that can be applied to life like a poultice. Turn your back for a moment and they may well organise a maypole dance, and frankly there's no option then but to try and make it to the tree line. The singers were halfway down Park Lane now and halfway through the Red Rosy Hen in marvellous harmony. The Red Rosy Hen greets the dawn of the day. In fact, the hen is not the bird traditionally associated with heralding a new sunrise, but Mrs Hugs, while collecting many old folk songs for posterity, has taken care to rewrite them where necessary to avoid, as she put it, offending those of a refined disposition with unwarranted coarseness. Much to her surprise, people often couldn't spot the unwarranted coarseness until it had been pointed out to them. Sometimes a chicken is nothing but a bird. Their collecting tins were already full of donations for the poor of the city, or at least those sections of the poor who, in Mrs Huggs's opinion, were suitably picturesque and not too smelly and could be relied upon to say thank you. People had come to their doors to listen. Orange light spilled out onto the snow. Candle lanterns glowed among the tumbling flakes. If you could have taken the lid off the scene, there would have been chocolates inside, or at least an interesting biscuit assortment. Mrs Huggs had heard that wassailing was an ancient ritual, and you didn't need anyone to tell you what that meant, but she felt she'd carefully removed all those elements that would affront the refined ear. And it was only gradually that the singers became aware of the discord. Around the corner, slipping and sliding on the ice, came another band of singers. Some people marched to a different drummer. The drummer in question here must have been trained elsewhere, possibly by a different species on another planet. In front of the group was a legless man on a small wheeled trolley who was singing at the top of his voice and banging two saucepans together. His name was Arnold Sideways. Pushing him along was Coffin Henry, whose croaking progress through an entirely different song was punctuated by bouts of off-the-beat coughing. He was accompanied by a perfectly ordinary-looking man in torn, dirty, and yet expensive clothing, whose pleasant tenor voice was drowned out by the quacking of a duck on his head. He answered to the name of Duck Man, although he never seemed to understand why, or why he was always surrounded by people who seemed to see ducks where no ducks could be. And finally, being towed along by a small grey dog on a string was foul old Ron, generally regarded in Ankh-Morpork as the deranged beggar's deranged beggar. He was probably incapable of singing, but at least he was attempting to swear in time to the beat, or beats. The wassailers stopped and watched them in horror. Neither party noticed 
as the beggars oozed and ambled up the street, that little smears of black and grey were spiralling out of the drains and squeezing out from under tiles and buzzing off into the night. People have always had the urge to sing and clang things at the dark stub of the year, when all sorts of psychic nastiness has taken advantage of the long grey days and the deep shadows to lurk and breed. Lately, people had taken to singing harmoniously, which rather lost the effect. Those who really understood just clanged something and shouted. The beggars were not, in fact, this well-versed in folkloric practice. They were just making a din in the well-founded hope that people would give them money to stop. It was just possible to make out a consensus song in there somewhere. Hogwatch is coming, the pig is getting fat. Please put a dollar in the old man's hat. If you ain't got a dollar, a penny will do. And, and if you ain't got a penny... Foul old Ron yodelled solo. Then... The duck man had with great presence of mind clamped a hand over Ron's mouth. So sorry about this, he said, but this time I'd like people not to slam their doors on us, and it doesn't scan anywhere. The nearby doors slammed regardless. The other wassailers fled hastily to a more salubrious location. Goodwill to all men was a phrase coined by someone who hadn't met foul old Ron. The beggars stopped singing, except for Arnold Sideways, who tended to live in his own small world. Nobody knows how good we can live on boots three times a day. Then the change in the air penetrated even his consciousness. Snow thumped off the trees as a contrary wind brushed them. There was a whirl of flakes, and it was just possible, since the beggars did not always have their mental compasses pointing due real, that they heard a brief snatch of conversation. It just ain't that simple, Master, that's all I'm saying. It is better to give than to receive, Albert. No, Master, it's just a lot more expensive. You can't just go round... Things rained down on the snow. The beggars looked at them. Arnold sideways carefully picked up a sugar pig and bit its nose off. Foul old Ron peered suspiciously into a cracker that had bounced off his hat and then shook it against his ear. The duck man opened a bag of sweets. Ah, humbugs, he said. Coffin Henry unlooped a string of sausages from around his neck. Bugger it, said foul old Ron. It's a cracker, said the dog, scratching its ear. You pull it. Ron waved the cracker aimlessly by one end. Oh, give it here, said the dog, and gripped the other end in its teeth. My word, said the duck man, fishing in a snowdrift. Here's a whole roast pig, and a big dish of roast potatoes miraculously uncracked. And look, look, isn't this caviar in the jar? Asparagus, potted shrimp, my goodness. What were we going to have for Hogswatch dinner, Arnold? Oh, boots, said Arnold. He opened a fallen box of cigars and licked them. Just old boots? Oh, no, stuffed with mud and with roast mud. Scood mud, too, I've been saving it up. Now we can have a merry feast of goose. All right. Can we stuff it with old boots? There was a pop from the direction of the cracker. They heard foul old Ron's thinking brain dog growl. No, no, no. You put the hat on your head and you read the humorous mutter. <laughs> Millennium end and shrimp, said Ron, passing the scrap of paper to the duck man. The duck man was regarded as the intellectual of the group. He peered at the motto. Ah, yes, let's see now. It says, 
Help, 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 I've fallen in the cracker machine. I can't keep running on this roller, please get me... Ah! He turned the paper over a few times. That appears to be it, except for the stains. <laughs> Always the same old mutters, said the dog. Someone slap Ron on the back, will you? If he laughs any more, he'll... Oh, he has. Oh, well, nothing new about that. The beggars spent a few more minutes picking up hams, jars and bottles that had settled on the snow. They packed them around Arnold on his trolley and set off down the street. How come we got all this? It's Hogswatch, right? Yeah, but who hung up their stocking? I don't think we've got any, have we? I hung up an old boot. Does that count? Do you know, Ron ate it. I'm waiting for the Hogfather, thought Ponder Stibbons. I'm in the dark, waiting for the Hogfather. Me, a believer in natural philosophy. I can find the square root of 27.4 in my head. I shouldn't be doing this. He'd have to admit that the answer would be five and a bit, but at least he could come up with it. It's not as if I've hung a stocking up. There'd be some point if... He sat rigid for a moment and then pulled off his pointy sandal and rolled down a sock. It helped if you thought of it as the scientific testing of an interesting hypothesis. From out of the darkness, Ridcully said, How long do you think? It's generally believed that all deliveries are completed well before midnight, said Ponder and tugged hard. Are you all right, Mr Stibbons? Fine, sir, fine. Uh, do you happen to have a drawing pin about you or a small nail, perhaps? Um, I don't believe so. It's all right, I've found a penknife. After a while, Ridcully heard a faint scratching noise in the dark. How do you spell electricity, sir? Ridcully thought for a while. You know, I don't think I ever do. There was a silence again and then a clang. The librarian grunted in his sleep. What are you doing? I just knocked over the coal shovel. Why are you feeling around on the mantelpiece? Oh, just, you know, just, just looking a little... Experiment? After all, you never know. You never know what? Just never know, you know. Sometimes, you know, said Ridcully. I think I know quite a lot that I didn't used to know. It's amazing what you do end up knowing, I sometimes think. Mm, I often wonder what new stuff I'll know. Well, you never know. That's a fact. 